The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. And again, good morning. Welcome to Morgan Hill Bible Church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is midway through the New Testament. I don't know if it's helpful, but that's about where it is in my Bible. If you're on the app, that's not helpful at all. Um, but it's, it's one of the New Testament letters of Paul. And we are kicking off today our series. We'll be studying this book for the next, I think it's nine or ten weeks. We'll, we'll finish the week before Easter as we'll walk through this book for the next couple months. I am so, so excited. Um, some, some people uh, say that Philippians perhaps contains more life verses, kind of those verses that stick out. They're like, I want that to be true of my life than almost any other book. And so I'm, I'm excited. There's some fantastic truths of the gospel, what it looks like and how it changes our lives that are conveyed in this book. So we're going to be getting today in Philippians chapter one. We'll cover the first 11 verses. You know, it is in our cultural DNA as Americans. I think this is true for all people, but especially for those of us who are Americans, which is most of us this morning for sure, that in our cultural DNA to pursue after happiness, right? That our lives should be about the pursuit of what brings us happiness. And that's true for any of us, whatever you are, that's in our cultural DNA. So much so that if you remember your history back to the very declaration of independence for this country, what was one of our inalienable rights to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Your, your teachers would be proud of you. You remembered something from elementary school. Right, that that is one of the things fundamental, the pursuit of happiness. But I think that's so well phrased, the pursuit of happiness, because when our lives become about pursuing after pleasures that bring us happiness, it's an endless pursuit, right? We'll never find that happy thing that satisfies, but it's when we find it, then there's another thing and there's another thing. And it's a continual pursuit after something. And some of us have spent years or maybe decades of our lives pursuing happiness when what the Bible has to offer is a far better alternative than an endless pursuit of happiness, and that is joy. Joy. Joy that can be experienced, not just when we have a great experience, but joy that can be true of us because of what Jesus has done for us, regardless of our circumstances. And Philippians is an amazing letter because it is highlighting the importance of joy and how the gospel brings joy deep into our hearts and our lives, regardless of what we are facing or the circumstances of our lives. Happiness depends on what our weeks look like. Joy can be ours no matter what in Jesus. And so let's jump in. Philippians chapter one, starting at verse one and two. It says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a letter from Paul and Timothy. Timothy was kind of a, an, a mentee of Paul. Paul was one of the great apostles of the church. He was a Pharisee a Jew, of Jews who persecuted the Christians. But then he had this radical transformation where Jesus appeared and changed his life. And then he dedicated the second half of his life, not to persecuting Christians, but to going and planting churches. He was kind of the original missionary. And he traveled around the known world at that time, planting churches all over. And one of those, which we're going to look at, is this in this city called 
Philippi. Now, Philippi is located, back then it was called Macedonia, and today is the, the area of Greece. We have a map of it for those of you who are geography people who like to see where it is in the map. So but underneath, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then the one with all the islands, I think my geography is still correct, is the Aegean Sea, something pronounced like that, right? And then Philippi is one of the main towns there on the northern coast of the Aegean Sea. You can see it just north there of, or over from Thessalonica, another well-known biblical town, right across from what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, the city of Philippi, beyond just what we know of it from Scripture, was well-known in Roman history. It was an important site for the Romans. In 42 B.C., Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the Roman Republic forces in Philippi of Brutus and Cassius. Those were the two guys, if you remember, who assassinated Julius Caesar. And their victory was achieved at Philippi. The citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens. This was the highest privilege for a Roman province that they were under and governed by Roman law. That pride in their citizenship, Paul's gonna play on that a couple chapters in to the book of Philippians. But this is a well-known and significant city. And we have recorded for us how this church got started. You can read for you the whole thing. I'll summarize it for us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is on what we call his second missionary journey. So kind of the second time he's left Jerusalem and gone out to plant churches. And he's in what is now modern day Turkey in Asia. And it says that the spirit prevented him from going places. We don't know exactly what that means. But then he has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come to us and preach us the gospel. And so it says immediately, Paul and his companions went, they sailed across, they traveled to Philippi. After a few days there, Philippi was a Roman city. It wasn't a very Jewish place. There was no synagogue where often Paul would go on his first Sabbath to a place, go to synagogue and preach there. There was no synagogue. And so Paul had heard he went right outside the city walls by the stream outside to where a group of people, most likely, mostly, or if not all women, were gathered to pray. And there Paul met with them, spoke with them. And one particular woman is highlighted from there who stands out, believes in the gospel, and her name is Lydia. And Lydia is the first convert to the Philippian church. Now, we don't know a lot about Lydia. It says that she's of wealthy means, that she was a dealer in purple cloth, which clearly means that Lydia was a Laker fan. (laughs) At least it wasn't Dodger blue, right? At least she didn't deal in Dodger blue, right? So... So Lydia is this well-known, well-established, prominent businesswoman who receives them, believes in Jesus, and then starts to host not only Paul, but also hosts the church starting to meet out of her home. It says that the next day that this happened, they were going out and there was this, this slave girl who was possessed by demons, but this demon possession, actually her owners would profit from it because she could tell the future. And she was going around following after Paul, harassing him, shouting out, you know, he, he speaks the name of Jesus and she was just shouting after him. For me, it would have taken like two hours so I got frustrated. It said it was several days for Paul until he finally commanded this demon to come out of her, which does. And so the second convert for the church of Philippi is a demon-possessed slave girl. We're off to a great start here, aren't we? The owners of this girl are not happy because she has made them lots of money. And so they have Paul and his companions arrested, take them to the magistrates where they are beaten and thrown into prison because of what they've done. That night in prison, it's about midnight, they're not crying and weeping for themselves, they're singing songs 
They're praising Jesus in the prison. That's a foreshadowing of this book itself of Philippians. They're praising God in there and there's a huge earthquake that comes. And so it's so forceful that the gates, everything is open to the prison so that the prisoners could go free if they wanted. The jailer comes, sees that the gates are open, fears for his life. Surely they've all escaped, which means he'll be executed rather than go through it. He takes a sword to kill himself when Paul famously comes out and says, no, don't kill yourself. We are all here. And the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And we have the third convert. So we have the Philippian church, a rich businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal, a suicidal jailer. This is a great start. I've never planted a church. I have lots of friends who have, and they say like the core group that you assemble to plant a church is meaningful. This is not the core group that you would ideally handpick to plant a church. But notice the work that God has done through these people and through those who have received the gospel that Paul calls them, verse one, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. To those whose lives have been changed. It's not a select group. That's the demon-possessed slave girl. That's the suicidal jailer. That's all of them. Because of Jesus, they are now saints partnering with Paul in ministry. And Paul now writes this letter back to the Philippians. It's about 10 years after this church was established. He again finds himself in prison for the preaching of the gospel. And even though he's in prison, Paul's letter, and we're going to see this even as we begin today, exudes great joy. There's joy found in his life imprisoned unjustly for the preaching of the gospel. And as Paul starts this passage, which this morning in verses 3 through 11 is basically one long prayer, we're going to see this morning three sources of joy for Paul that can be true of us as well because of who he is in Jesus and how he views his life. So let's read together starting at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the first source of joy for Paul is joy is found in gospel partnership. Joy is found in gospel partnership. As I pray for you, church, and as I think about you, my mind is filled with joy. I'm filled with joy because you have partnered with me in the gospel from the very beginning until now. This this close relationship and clear love that Paul has for this church, the affection he has for them shows itself throughout the whole letter. Just like two verses later in verse seven and eight, he says this, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This group of people has striven alongside, has served with Paul. They are partners in ministry. And that word that Paul uses there in verse five, that of your partnership in the gospel is a very strong and unique word in the biblical text. In fact, the word itself, the Greek word is called koinonia, which I point out because there's oftentimes, if you've been in the church world, there's ministries and churches, even parachurch ministries that call themselves this word, koinonia or fellowship or camaraderie, this idea of being so close as we serve alongside one another. 
See, sometimes though in our world, the idea of Christian fellowship and what that actually means and looks like has become so watered down. It looks nothing like what the Bible or certainly not what Paul is thinking of here when he speaks of partnering, of fellowshipping together in the gospel. See, sometimes when we talk about fellowship, all we mean is two Christians hanging out together, right? Like if you go and you get coffee with your non-Christian friend, you're hanging out. If you go and get coffee with your Christian friend, it's fellowship. Right, like we're gonna go eat, drink some coffee after service. We will fellowship amongst one another. Now, there, there should be a friendship amongst believers. That's biblical and that's a part of what he's talking about. But Paul here isn't being like, hey, we grabbed coffee one time together. I'm so filled with joy because of that. No, there, there's something deeper and more significant that Paul is talking about when, he, when he's thinking of this partnership in the gospel, which strengthens him and holds joy in all these circumstances in which he's facing. So, so what does Paul mean by partnership? We know he's meaning at least three things here when he's speaking of gospel partners alongside with him. The first part of gospel partnership is these were people who financially supported him. They were financially supportive of Paul in the ministry of the gospel through him. Paul uses this same word, partnership, koinonia, to refer to financial support in the book of Romans and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, and actually later here in this book in Philippians as well. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, he says this, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He's clearly talking there in the context about financial giving, that they have partnered with him in the gospel because of their financial giving, their generosity that they have blessed him with. Now, we are blessed at this church to have many, not donors, but gospel partners who give of their finances to support what God is doing at Morgan Hill Bible Church. And my hope is that if you are one who gives of your financial resources to this church, I hope I kind of have two hopes for you. First, I hope that you truly see and recognize in your life that when you give money to God's work here at the church or in other ministries, perhaps that you donate to or give to, that you see it as a partnership in what God is doing. That what you are doing is significant and matters. The ministry of the gospel couldn't happen without it. Your, your primary motivation in giving shouldn't be that you feel like it's something owed to you, that you owe it to God or it's a good tax deduction. Right? There's nothing sinful about taking a tax deduction on your charitable giving. But if your primary motivation in giving to a church or to parachurch ministry is like, I get to write this off, let's give some money away. That's, that's not what God intended for it to do. If your primary motivation in giving financially is you feel like you owe something to God, so you have to give it back to him. That's not the reason that God calls us to be generous. So my hope is that like this church that where Paul exudes, that you would see yourself as partners in ministry. And my hope is that when you start to see yourself as partners in what God is doing here, that you would have joy knowing the impact that your money is making in the kingdom of God. Whether you give a little or a lot, a small percentage or a large percentage of what God has blessed you with, that when you financially support the work of God in the world, that we can have joy seeing the difference that our money is making. You are a very real part of all the ministries that God is doing at this church. I wish that you could just come like I get to and spend 30, 40, 50 hours on site here at this church throughout the week. A lot happens here besides just Sunday mornings when we gather for three hours and worship God together. 
I wish you could stop by sometime and see the youth group, that you could spend time in the children's ministry classes, that you could go and visit the many community groups that we have that are opening God's word and caring for one another and praying together. I wish you could see the ministry that's happening. And if you financially support us, you are a partner in what God is doing. You may never be a junior high leader. Let's all say amen to that, right? Like, but you are a partner in so many of those kids coming to know Jesus and sending them to camp last summer. You played a part in that, a significant part. And not only do you, if you financially support our church, do you get to play a part in what God is doing here in the South Valley, but you're partnering with us in what God is doing throughout the world. We send over 100, I think close to $200,000 a year to our ministry partners all over the world. So you're having a part of what God is doing in Mexico, in Europe, in parts of the Middle East that we can't even tell you where people are at because it's not allowed to be Christians in the countries where our missionaries are serving. And you're a part of what the gospel is doing all over the world. And so financial support of ministries and what God is doing of the church is not just some thing that we owe him, but it's actually a partnership together. And Paul has been blessed. And I hope you find true joy in being able to be generous in partnering with us financially in what God is doing. The second thing that Paul clearly is thinking of when he, he thinks here of, of partnership is prayer support. This is a church that has prayed for him and he has prayed for them. There's this mutual prayer relationship that they have towards one another. One of the most valuable things you can do for our church, for our staff, one of the most valuable things you can do for me is to pray for us. Prayer is not the secondary work of ministry. Prayer is primary. And your prayers, which I know there's a lot of you who regularly and faithfully pray for our church, and I am so thankful for you. You are partners with us in what God is doing. Because for the work of the Spirit to happen, it's not because of our own thoughts, our own imagination, our own creativity, but it has to be a work of God. And the work of God happens when God's people pray. And thank you for those of you. And if you haven't, I would encourage you, if you wanna feel greater partnership with others, a partnership with our church, start praying. Pray regularly for our ministries. Pray regularly for our team. Pray regularly for our church that God would do a work here that would bring him glory. And prayer brings these people together in gospel partnership. Thirdly, is their service together. That they experience gospel partnership because of their service together. He addresses here the, the overseers, the deacons, those in leadership, but then it's clear here, right? They've all partaken with grace in his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, this church in Philippi understood this important concept that every single Christian is called to ministry. Every single Christian is called to serve in ministry. Now, he didn't say that every single Christian is called to quit their job, go to school, become a full-time minister and become a pastor. That'd be really awkward if there was a couple hundred of us up here and no one out there, right? Like that's not what most Christians aren't called to go into vocational ministry. Every Christian is called into ministry. Some of you might be at a tech job or at your school or at your college or in your neighborhood or with your family. All of us are called into serving God in ministry in different ways in different capacities. And there are few things, few ways in which you will experience gospel partnerships and joy than when you serve alongside one another for the kingdom. Why? Because this mission that our church has, the mission that God has given to the church to make disciples of the world is far greater than any one of us. 
And we are captured by that mission of serving God, of reaching the world and serving alongside each other to do just a little bit, but our part in accomplishing that purpose, it binds us together to one another. One of my, my favorite movies, and perhaps you've read the book as well, is uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Right, the whole Lord of the Rings series I love, but I, I love the first movie too, The Fellowship of the Ring. And most of you probably know the context of the story, right? There's this horrible ring that's found, the ring of power, they need to defeat it. And so this kind of council is brought about and there's like 20 or so odd people that are sitting around in a circle trying to figure out what to do. And so finally, right, Frodo says, I, I'll go and destroy it. And then what happens? They're not like, all right, go do it yourself, buddy. Good luck. Right? But suddenly you have men and elves and dwarves and wizards and hobbits all working together for this one great purpose that is far greater than any of them. These different races who have for generations not just not gotten along, but hated each other and had animosity was overcome because of this amazing mission that they were called to be a part of that overcame all of that and drew them so close together. See, when we serve Jesus, we work towards the ultimate goal of seeing the great commission happen in the world. That the mission Jesus has given, not just those in vocational ministry, but every Christian is to make disciples of all the nations. That's the call for every single one of us. And how you do it may look different from how I do it versus how someone else does it, but we're all called in to ministry. I love what one commentator put talking about this passage. He said, the heart of true fellowship of koinonia is self-sacrificing conformity to the shared vision of Jesus that our hearts are captured by this vision of Jesus, what he wants for the world. And so we will serve alongside one another. And again, if this is your church, if you consider Morgan Hill Bible Church your home church, I would encourage you to find where you can serve to make a meaningful impact in your life, in the life of this church. Every single one of us have gifts. That's If you're a follower of Jesus, God has gifted you for the service of his kingdom. And there is few things that will more powerfully bond you to one another where you can experience joy than actually serving and using those gifts alongside one another. So it's the first source of joy is this gospel partnership that we have in life. The second source of joy is found in verse six. This is one of those amazing life verses in the book of Philippians. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The second source of joy that we have here is joy is found in Jesus's faithfulness. Joy is found in Jesus's faithfulness, not in our own efforts, not in our own doing, but we can have joy because of Jesus's faithfulness to us. Notice what he says, how he starts verse six. I am sure of this. I'm confident, I'm convinced. I'm not questioning, I'm not wondering. He says, I know. I know this, that he, that's Jesus, who began the good work in you, right? Who brought about, who, who did all he needs to do for your salvation. This Jesus will be faithful, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, as followers of Jesus, we have been saved by God. We are continually being saved. And ultimately one day we will be fully saved by him. Sometimes the theological words that people use for those are we're justified, we are sanctified, and one day we will be glorified. See, Jesus begins a good work in us, meaning this, that there's a period in each one of every one of our lives where God restores and makes new what is broken in our lives. Where we recognize the sin, the faults, the failures, the shortcomings of my life to a holy God. And we recognize that what Jesus did for us, no one else could do. 
So you could go out and say, I'm going to die for people's sins, but it wouldn't matter because you're not perfect. You don't have that authority. Only Jesus could because he's the son of God. He lived the perfect life. He came, he died for our sin. He took our sin, took our place on the cross, showed he was God by defeating death, rising from the dead. And when we believe in that, God begins a work in our hearts. And it's my prayer that if you have never had that work begin, that today would be that day of salvation for you. That today God would begin a work in your hearts that we are justified, we are made right, we are declared holy before God, not because of our own, but because of what God has done for us. We are saved by grace. But God begins work in us. And then God sanctifies us. He leads us along the way. Sin just doesn't disappear from our life. I wish, right? It doesn't disappear. And there's this constant struggle of what does it look like to follow Jesus, trying to conform our lives more, to look more like him, to reflect God, to be like Jesus in our world. And and Jesus and the Holy Spirit partner with us in sanctifying us and making us more holy, more holy until one day we will be glorified. One day we will be like how God wants us totally to be. It says here that he'll bring it to completion when at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a reference back to the Old Testament. If you were to read the Old Testament prophets, they're always talking about this future, what they call day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, when God would return. And Paul is picking up on this same language, the day of Jesus Christ. See, for unbelievers, it's a day of judgment. But for those of us who are in Jesus, we look forward to it with anticipation because of the blessings that will be ours when Jesus one day returns. And there's joy for us because of the faithfulness of Jesus to us. See, we live, and Paul points out this tension in verse verse six. He began a good work, but he will bring it to completion. And where are we? We're right in the middle of that. Right? Some people put it, we are between the already and the not yet. We've experienced salvation. God has justified you if you believed in Jesus. You are saved, but we're not yet what we will be. Right? And I remember as a kid, like thinking like, oh, it's not that great. Like people talk about the glorified bodies. I'm like, oh, mine's just fine. Now I'm like, yep, can't wait. Like I want some of that. And the longer I walk with God, the more I see my own sin and my own shortcomings. I'm like, I, I can't wait. Can't wait till I am glorified at that day. And how, how, how can Paul have this confidence? How can we live with confidence that when we think of Jesus's return, we're not shaking in terror, but we're looking forward in anticipation. How can he say, I'm sure of this? Why? He says, because it's not dependent on you, but who is it dependent on? He who began the good work in you. You can have joy wherever you find yourself because Jesus is faithful to you wherever you are on your journey of faith. Have you ever uh, started a project in your house and then not completed it? It's good to know I'm not the only one, all right? (laughs) I remember uh, the the first house that my wife and I bought, we were living in Chicago at the time. The year we bought it was the year the house turned 100 years old. It was a beautiful brick bungalow on the northwest side in the city of Chicago. And when we moved in, it was, you know, it was in good condition, but, you know, the house itself, the main level and the upstairs were stuck in the 90s, which is when the previous owner had bought it and moved in and updated it to the 90s. We're not living in the 90s anymore, right? So we did a lot of flooring. We painted the whole house, right, main level upstairs. And it's kind of where you live, right? So we, we cranked it. We did it really quick, right? You just work hard. You get through all of the main projects. The basement of the house was stuck in the 70s, 
Not the 90s. It was like reverse 20 years from there. It was like the owner before had updated the basement. No one had touched it for almost 50 years. And when we, after, you know, you kind of rush through the main projects and I'm like, hey, you know what? I need to clean up the basement. I need to paint the basement. So I started painting the basement about a month or two after we bought the house. I finished painting the basement a week before a house was listed to go for sale. Right? We use the basement for storage and to do the laundry. And it's like, I don't need to paint down there. Right? Uh, well, no one sees it. We don't go down there. Why do we need it? Right? I had started it out with every intention. Then I was kind of like, eh, forget about it. I got better things on my time. When Jesus looks at you, he's not going to leave you an unfinished project. You're not going to be forgotten in the basement as he moves on to bigger and to better and to other things. Jesus will be faithful to you no matter what. And I don't know where you find yourself on this journey of life. For some of you, maybe you're right at the beginning of that work that Jesus is beginning in you and you're planning, man, I got, I got a long road ahead of me. Jesus is gonna be faithful. He, he's gonna correct the things in your life that need correcting. He's gonna walk with you with grace and love. You got a long way to go. And God's gonna be with you every journey. And some of you maybe are on the back half of your journey. And you know that the years you've lived are a lot longer than those you have facing, but they're still unknowns ahead of you. Jesus will be faithful to you then. He's begun the good work in you. He will be faithful to complete the work in you. He won't forget you. And we can find joy because wherever we find ourselves on that journey, Jesus will be faithful to us. Paul continues and closes this opening section with kind of this reverberation back into prayer. In verse nine, he says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The third source of joy for Paul is that joy is found in our ultimate calling. Joy is found in our ultimate calling as believers. And what is it? It's in case they're in that last line, the closing line of Paul's prayer to the church. Why does he hope that the spirit is so acknowledged? Why does he hope that lives are changed, that this love, this fruit, this knowledge, why does he hope that all that is seen? At the end of verse 11, why? Because life is to be lived to the glory and praise of God. That's our calling. See, salvation beginning by God and being of God doesn't then just get, mean we get to do whatever we want, right? But he specifically prays that these signs of the work that God began in us would be evidenced, would be seen in our lives. Notice, he, he first off, he prays, that is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. There's no object here of love. It doesn't say love these people, right? Sometimes often in these verses, we maybe would expect love one another or love those in the church. That's often where it's referenced. But you know, if you've known your Bible at all, love is the all-encompassing command of Jesus to his church. Love one another, love your enemies, love your spouse. Sometimes that's the same person, right? But, but love is to go forth from all of us. What is the summary of all the Old Testament commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love is to be the defining characteristic of our lives. And he prays that this all-encompassing love would be evidenced and seen more and more. Not that it wasn't, but it would continue to grow within the church. It should be our prayer for our lives as well. But love is tied as well. Notice love with 
knowledge and all discernment with truth. This is so often the case in the Bible that these two go together, love and truth and knowledge, discernment of who God is and what his will is for our world. See, in our culture, what often happens is we swing too far one way or the other and we ignore one side. And what's very popular these days is to love people, but not to talk about the truth of God's word and to do love with knowledge and discernment as well. In our culture, this is often what's lacking. But if you remember back to when we walked a couple months ago through the, the churches in Revelation, what does God say to a church that has their doctrine right, that believes all the right things, but doesn't love? That was the church in Ephesus. What does he say? Repent. That's not what I want. I want you to love, not just to believe things. I want you to love. What does he say to a church that's living the right way, that's showing love, but is believing false doctrine? What, what does he say to that church? That was the church in Thyatira. What does he say? Repent, because that's not what I want either. Following Jesus is found in the middle as we, lead, as we love others, but believe and love Jesus by following his commandments and knowing his knowledge and his truth that he has given to us. We do so recognizing, again, you see it there in verse 10, the day of Christ, that Jesus is coming back. He prays for a kind of, in verse 11, this all-encompassing fruit of righteousness. That's a popular expression in the New Testament, that if our lives are seen as trees, what's inside of us will be made known by the fruit, by the evidence of our lives. In Galatians, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Right, that when Jesus does a work within you and the Holy Spirit lives within you, certain things are true of you. They must be true. They must be seen in our lives if that is who God has now made us in Jesus. And so he prays that that would be true. But why does he pray that their love would grow? Why does he pray that their knowledge would grow? Why did he pray that their fruit of righteousness would grow in their lives? Why? So that God would receive glory and praise. Verse 11. See, how he ends this prayer is how Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer. If you're a part of our week of prayer, which I know a lot of us were, so thank you to Pastor Ricky for the great work he did in pulling all that together. But we started that, that time together with looking at the Lord's Prayer by the phrase of Jesus, hallowed be your name. It's not an expression we use a lot now, but saying, God, all of my life is to be lived under for your glory that you are to be preeminent, you are the most important, you are the center, and everything of my life falls under who you are, under your glory, and me living my life to your praise. That's the same thing that Paul is doing here. He's saying we take all of these things and we put it under submission to God. Joy is found when we find our ultimate calling of pursuing Jesus and bringing him glory. I was reminded this week of of a phrase that my parents would say to me when I was a child. I don't know about you, but I lived in a, a very strict and legalistic household. My parents made me do awful things like make my bed, brush my teeth. Sometimes they even made me shower. It was crazy. Such strict parents. I'm sure your parents were nothing like that. I'm sure you as a parent don't ask your kids to do any of those things, right? But as a child, I was like, this is, this is crazy. This is ridiculous, right? And so what would my normal response be, especially, you know, when I was younger to, to these outrageous requests? Do I have to? It actually was more attitude than that. It was something like, do I have to, right? Like you have to get the sigh in there, right? To, to exude the exasperation, right? Like with mom and dad, come on. I remember my dad, especially, he always had this phrase. You don't have to, you get to. You don't have to, you get to. And I think part of what, what the twist in that is, is it's like, you know, so often, do I have to make my bed? Well, you get to, because not every person has a bed they get to sleep in. 
You don't have to do your dishes. You get to, because it's a privilege to be able to eat food and to be able to clean those dishes. See, it's a, it's a privilege that when we get to do something. And sometimes as Christians, we're so consumed with our lives, with our desires, with what we want. We can read a passage like this and be like, do I have to live for God's glory? And the answer is no, you don't have to, you get to. There's no greater privilege. There's no higher calling in life than recognizing God loved me as messed up as I was, as messed up as I still am. That God showed his grace on my life when I didn't deserve it. And that he saved me and that I get to live my life to bring him glory. Not that I have to, but it's the highest honor and I get to. When our mind is twisted that way, when we cast off the selfishness of our own life and we start to catch this vision of I get to live my life, not about myself, before God's glory. When we get our ultimate calling, we can find joy in every circumstance because it's not about pursuing ourselves, our own desires, our own happiness. It's about pursuing God and his glory. And we can find joy there knowing that God is glorified through our lives. God, we do pray that you would find glory and honor and praise through our lives, that you would find glory and honor and praise through this church. God, we thank you once again for your faithfulness to us, that wherever we find ourselves this morning, Jesus promises that he will be faithful, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God, would we rest assured today of your goodness, your grace, your mercy, because we know what it took to begin that work, what Jesus did for us. May we live our lives captivated by your mission, your calling to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.